always a privilege to be able to be with you, and, and I'm always so thankful for Chip and how gracious he is in, in letting me uh, preach. And um, it is uh, the beginning of the year. Yesterday was freshman move-in, and so this week will be the first week of classes and our first large group just trying to crank everything back up, so we would definitely uh, cover your prayers, but we're excited about another year. I'd invite you to take your Bibles with me, turn to the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be in chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Uh, it's a story of, of Jesus uh, going home to his hometown of Nazareth uh, and preaching in the synagogue. It's a, it's a great story. I don't, I don't know how much you've been paying attention to the Olympics, but you know, every four years for two weeks, we've got the best athletes in the world uh, all day, every day for two weeks, competing in all these different sports. And, and at this point, there's uh, at least my satellite subscription, there's five or six channels that you can find different things going on in Rio. Um, but you can't always find exactly the sport that you want to watch when you want to watch it. Because at night, NBC, on, on its primetime, for four-hour slot of primetime, they want to draw as many viewers as they can, right? So they're taking the best footage, the best competitions, the best stories of the day, and they're putting it together uh, during those four hours so they can draw as many viewers as they can. So you're getting what happened. You're getting the true, the true story of the events and, the, and, the, and the, the sports as they unfolded, but you're also getting it the way NBC wants you to watch it uh, in a way that will draw you in to watching uh, during, those, the, during those primetime hours. Something interesting I, I came across when I studied the Gospel of Luke a couple of years ago as we studied it uh, on Wednesday nights at RUF. You know, I have to be kind of strategic uh, when, when I pick a book of the Bible to go over a semester, I've only got a certain number of Wednesday nights, uh, and I got to pick and choose what I'm going to cover. And as much as I tried to, to look at other stories I wanted to go in, or other passages in this gospel that I wanted to look at that semester, I could not get away from this one. And one of the reasons it sticks out, it, it takes place, Luke records it uh, right after Jesus' baptism and temptation. Uh, when Jesus was baptized and then he went out into the wilderness to be tempted, that's when he began his public ministry. And in Matthew, uh, Matthew has a good nine chapters of miracles and teachings and, and of things that happened in Jesus' ministry between the temptation and this event of Jesus returning to Nazareth. Mark also goes about six chapters into his gospel before he records Jesus going back to Nazareth, and this happens. It's also interesting, Matthew and Mark don't tell us exactly what happened. And so it's interesting to look at Luke's gospel that he intentionally wants to put this at the beginning as you begin to read about Jesus' public ministry in Luke's gospel. This is the first story that Luke wants to give you. And it's also interesting that Luke actually tells us exactly what happened on this day. So what is Luke trying to tell us? Why is Luke putting this at the outset of recording Jesus' public ministry? What is he trying to tell us? This is what he's trying to tell us. Jesus went to his hometown, and he was rejected. He was rejected. This Jesus that you've heard about, that you want to maybe follow, you maybe want to give your life to, Luke, the first thing Luke wants you to know about him when he started his public ministry is that in his hometown, he was rejected. It's fascinating to me, and I love this passage, so let's look to it, and before I read it, let me pray. Father, this is your word. 
We pray, we ask that you would speak to us by your Spirit. Father, that you would show us Jesus. Father, that we would see him, that we would hear him, that we would know him this day. We pray in his name. Amen. Luke 4, starting in verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went, went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and preaching of it. Jesus goes home and Jesus is rejected. That's what I want to think about this morning in three ways that we see this rejection take place. First, we're going to see that uh, his hometown crowd, they rejected the message. Second, we're going to see they rejected the man. And finally, we'll see that they rejected the mission. So the first thing here that we see is that they rejected the message. They rejected what he said. And to kind of set the scene, uh, as was Jesus' custom, you read throughout the Gospels, he went to the synagogue, uh, wherever he would be on on a certain Sabbath, he would enter the synagogue. That was his custom. And as custom would have it uh, in synagogues, notable teachers, if they were present, they would be invited up front to read from the Scriptures and even uh, allowed to expound on those Scriptures. And so this is what happens. Jesus is invited up front. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah, but we're told that he finds Isaiah 61. What is to us Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2? They didn't have chapters and verses, but to us, that's the passage that he found, and that's the one that he reads. And you look at those verses, verses 18 and 19, there in Luke 4. Right? Without any context, you read those verses, and those are pretty good. Right? As one of my seminary professors used to say, that'll preach. 
You might even have to prepare that much. That, that'll preach. There's, there's great um, themes going on in those few short verses. But again, the fact that he, we're told that he found this passage, the fact that he says today this is fulfilled in your hearing, the fact that by the end of all of this they want to kill him, clues us in that there's actually there's something more going on here. And there is. First, Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the longest and uh, richest books of the entire Old Testament. It's second only to the Psalms in being the most quoted Old Testament book uh, in the New Testament. Uh, It's written 700 years before Jesus is born. Uh, Isaiah prophesied of the coming judgment to both Israel and Judah at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But one of the most vivid things about Isaiah and so many beautiful passages that are, are so often quoted from that book is how God promises continually and vividly Restoration and mercy and grace, even in the light of judgment and coming judgment. Now, another thing about Nazareth, where Jesus is and where Jesus grew up, the very fact that there were Jews in Nazareth, in Galilee, where there's mostly Gentiles, is actually a result of the judgment that came, that, uh, that Isaiah prophesied about. When Jerusalem is destroyed and Israel and Judah were no more, they're sent into exile. The Jews were spread out all over the place, and one of the little enclaves was here in Nazareth. It was actually known as a very conservative enclave of Jews. They were uh, known for clinging to their traditional Jewish culture in the midst of a world that was being radically changed by the spread of Greek culture. And so it's that context, Jesus knowing the context, because he grew up there, that he reads this passage. And so kind of knowing just a little bit of that, you kind of see the weight of what all is being said here in Isaiah 61 that Jesus reads. And the biggest overtone of the passage is verse 19 there in Luke 4, where Jesus ends his reading, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this is a a big theme in the Old Testament. It's actually in Leviticus 25. Uh, It's known as the year of Jubilee. It's a year that God prescribed that every 50 years that the the, the people of Israel would rest from everything. They would sow nor reap, and then all debtors would be released from their debts, slaves set free, the foreigner taken care of. It it, It was hands down the greatest year on the calendar. It was a year of blanket amnesty, a year of blanket redemption, a year of blanket restoration. And so Jubilee is the best year on the calendar. And what Isaiah is prophesying in Isaiah 61 is a Jubilee to end all Jubilees. Now you hear a people that has been exiled, a people that has not had their own rulers for some six centuries at this point, you get the weight of the passage now. Because the Jubilee of Jubilees would be that year when everything was finally set right, when everything was finally restored, when justice would reign, when righteousness would reign, and when God's chosen people would be known as just that throughout all the world. That's the weight with which they hear this passage. So how in the world, by the end of it, are they wanting to kill Jesus? There's a hint of it here. Verse 22. Look at verse 22. We read that they spoke well of him and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now, I don't know if a southerner did that translation, but I know how southern ears hear that, right? We think they thought, well, he was eloquent. He spoke well. But the literal Greek, gracious is not, a, is not a, uh, an adjective in the Greek, it's a noun. They literally were marveling at his words of grace. They're marveling at the content of what Jesus is saying. Because here's the thing, 
If you look at Isaiah 61, Jesus didn't read the whole thing. He actually stops mid-sentence, at least in the English translation. Let me read for you Isaiah 61, verse 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. They knew that that came next. Jesus knew that that came next. But he rolls the scroll up, he gives it to the attendant, and he sits down. For some 600 years, the Jews had been in exile or ruled by foreign kings and kingdoms. And Isaiah 61 is explicitly about a time when one would come and all of that would end. And a hallmark of that day would be judgment on all gods and his people's enemies. That's what they wanted to hear. But Jesus rolls the scroll up, he hands it to the attendant, and he sits down. The implication is that he's saying this. Indeed, the time of grace has come, but not the time of judgment. And that's what they wanted to hear, and they're not hearing it. And we actually, we see this another place in John chapter 3 in a familiar verse, uh, in the verse that follows it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Still, wouldn't you think that was great news? Matthew and Mark both make the point to tell us that Jesus, when he leaves here, marveled at their unbelief. I suggest to you this is precisely where he lost them. They thought that he was given this great political manifesto, this earthly physical deliverance, this a political revolution, a social revolution, maybe even a, a medical revolution. But Jesus says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. So they're scratching their heads and they're saying, that can't be. So it couldn't have been that. Over and over again, what you see in the New Testament and in the Gospels and people's interactions with Jesus is that people who are looking for earthly gain and earthly kingdoms are constantly frustrated by Jesus. That's what's going on here. Because what Jesus makes clear over and over again is that he came first and foremost to bring spiritual deliverance from the power of sin. You remember the story of the paralytic, right? One of the, one of the more popular uh, of Jesus' miracles. The guys get up on the roof with their friend. They tear a hole in the roof, and they lower their friend down, right? Because the, the house is so crowded. It's an amazing scene to imagine, and everybody's holding their breath. They think, man, we're going to see an awesome miracle today. And you remember, everybody's quiet. Everybody's watching Jesus. And what does Jesus say to the man? Son, your sins are forgiven you. You have to imagine everybody in the house is going... Yeah, but he can't walk. (laughs) That was Jesus' message of grace. Because by implication, what Jesus is saying to that man, what he's saying here in the synagogue, what he's saying to us, is that is our greatest need. And no other need can compare to it. But we see by the end of this passage, they don't agree because they want Rome kicked out. They want Jerusalem back. They want, dare I say it, Israel to be great again. Jesus has taken this text of justice and judgment and he has turned it into a text of mercy and of grace. And they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear it. We need to move on, but let me make this point. What Jesus exposes here at the outset is our inclination to view our needs 
It's out there. On the outside. I just, we just, if, if, we just, if the, the economy would just pick back up, right? If, if we just had a better, a better president, if, we just had, if I just had a better, uh, a, a better job, if I just had better kids, if I just had a, a better spouse, the list goes on. But what Jesus and the Gospels continually point us to is that our need begins squarely right here. That was what Jesus was doing. In that moment, he was locating their need in their midst. When everything in their life was looking out there, I just need that, I just need that, I just need that. And he says, no, it's not your greatest need. And they completely miss it. So they reject the message. Let's move on because uh, we also see that they reject the man. They reject the message, they reject what he said. But the thing is, is you can't reject what Jesus says without also rejecting him. And that's exactly what they do. They reject him, who he was. So they're, they're trying to process what Jesus is saying. And all their eyes are fixed on him. He sits down, and what does he say? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And to have been a fly on the wall at that moment, it's not lost on them what he's claiming. Isaiah 61, it begins, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do these things. Jesus knows what he's saying. They know what he's claiming. That's me. These promises, these fulfillments, this hope, if you want it, if you want to find it, it begins with me. It's about me. This message, this hope, every single part of it is tied to me. And we need to hear this, and maybe... Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're, uh, you're, you're thinking, through, thinking it through. You've got to hear this. When it comes to Christianity, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the hope that lies therein, every single piece and part of it is tied to this man, Jesus of Nazareth. You cannot have any part of it without him. You lose him, you lose all of it. That is what Jesus is saying. Every hope and dream that you have had, he's telling his hometown, and especially as it relates to the promises and the hope of this chapter, of this passage in the Bible, it's about me. You need me. I think this is what C.S. Lewis was getting at in Mere Christianity. I can't read the whole quote. It's a great quote, but a piece of it, he says this. He says, A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. Because you cannot take any piece or part of anything he said without him. The point is him. And we need to be reminded of this. Why are we here today? Why are you here? He's the reason why we're here. He is it. He's all of it. There's implications for how we read the Bible, how we listen to sermons, how we study theology, right? Because there's, there's a subtle pragmatism that can kind of slip into our piety sometimes where we're treating it as, as a checklist or we're treating it as uh, just kind of useful tidbits that we garner to kind of put some ammo in our pocket for, our certain, for certain situations or circumstances that may come up. And what we end up doing subtly is separating it, the Word and knowledge of God, from God Himself. From Jesus himself. And we stop understanding the word or the scripture the way that God intended us to. To be read through his spirit. To hear it and read it the way that Jesus himself did. 
as God's very words that continually on every page hold out Jesus to us and draw us to Him and draw us to want Him. This is exactly what the hometown crowd missed. I love uh, in Luke 24, the the, the post-resurrection accounts that Luke records for us in Luke 24. um, There's actually a couple of interactions that Jesus has before he ever even gets to his disciples. He gets to his disciples, they're locked up in a room, they're just trying to figure, their world has been shattered. They've even heard reports that people have seen and talked to Jesus, and they're still trying to process it all. And then all of a sudden, there is Jesus in their midst, and Luke tells us that they still didn't believe And you know what Jesus did? Didn't turn a light on, didn't do a miracle. You know what he did? Luke tells us that he opened the scriptures to them, the things concerning himself. This is what the hometown crowd missed. They wanted the passage to be about them and about their enemies getting what was coming to them. But that was secondary because what God was offering even 700 years before he's born is Jesus. Holding out Jesus to his people. And the hometown crowd, they didn't want Jesus. It's just Joseph's son. Nothing special. Again, why are we here? Why do we do this, some of us, week in and week out? You know, having children, uh, if you have young children or or had young children, there's always always the great sequence of why questions. You know, why why this? And you come up with some thoughtful answer, and then what's the immediate reply? Why? And every answer you get, I mean, you add infinitum, just every answer you give is never good enough. Why is always there. And finally, you just get to the end and be like, just be quiet, stop asking questions, I don't know. Um... It seems like a simple question, but why do we do this? And the point is, is if it's any other reason but Jesus, we've missed it. We've missed it. The often quotable C.H. Spurgeon, uh, he used to talk about this in his sermons a bunch. And one of my favorite quotes, he says this. He says, a sermon without Christ is like a loaf of bread without any flour. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Spurgeon understood that there is no message without this man. The message was about grace, it was good news, it was about liberty and favor. All of those things Jesus is saying begin and are found in me. The implications of the gospel, the implications of the gospel are that our needs are far greater, far deeper, and far more desperate than we've even begun to scratch the surface of. But at the same time, what the gospel says is that every single one of them is met in Jesus. Every single one. And so I think it's worth asking, is that maybe where we get hung up? Do we really believe that? Because I I think even the best of us in here would say we are needy people in different areas of our lives. But the question is, do I really believe that Jesus can meet me there? You just don't know. You just don't know where I've been. You don't know what's going on. Do we really believe 
that he knows our needs. Because what he's saying is there's actually a need that underlies every other need. And it's found in him. The answer is found in him. Paul puts it beautifully in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Where do you locate your need this morning? Where does your mind drift to in the day when you're not thinking about something else? Where does your mind automatically go? Most of the time, I would suggest to you, it's probably going to the things you think you need. Jesus is saying he is all we could ever need. But the hometown crowd, they missed it. And they rejected it. Final thing I want to see here is they rejected the mission. They reject the mission. They reject the message, what he said, uh, because it wasn't what they wanted to hear. They reject the man because, I mean, this is just Jesus, the carpenter's boy. But they also reject his mission, what he came to do and who he came for. It's what the angels told the shepherds in the field after Jesus was born. For unto you is born this day, what? A Savior. A Savior. It's these two Old Testament stories. That's what I find fascinating here. It's these two Old Testament stories that Jesus tells. That's what really sets them off. And by the time he's done, they take him outside to kill him. His hometown crowd. He calls them on wanting a sign by quoting the proverb position, heal yourself. And so then, uh, in answer to their wanting a sign, he gives them two stories of two heroes of the faith. Abraham, Moses, David, no. A widow in Zarephath, we don't even know her name. And Naaman the Syrian. 1 Kings 17, Elijah, Elijah was sent to this widow. She was living in extreme poverty during a great famine. And of all things, Elijah asked for food. And so God promises to provide if she will provide for his prophet. And so she believes God would do what he said, and he does. He provides. Second Kings 5, we read about this man, Naaman, who's a mighty man of valor. He's one of the top men of Syria, but he was a leper. He was a dead man walking. He's sent to find Elisha. And Elisha tells him, wash in the Jordan and you'll be clean. And so he has a choice to make. Do I do it, or do I walk away and die? And so he does. He washes and he's clean. What did these two have in common, other than both being Gentiles, which is definitely significant in this context? What both of those had in common was at the end of the day, they really had no other choice but to depend on God. At the end of the day, life was not going to get any worse for either of those two. They had no other choice but to believe the word of God and trust that he would do what he said. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you want to receive the benefits of the promises of Jubilee that I am bringing, and oh, I'm bringing them, then you must imitate the faith of these two Gentiles. And they're filled with wrath, and they want to kill him. You have to understand You can go read it for yourself in Leviticus 25. Jubilee, this 50th year, it was for the rejects of the world. It was for the poor. It was for the needy. It was for the downtrodden. It was for the alien. 
And Jesus is saying, that's exactly who I've come for. The people on the outside, the people who can't get a leg up. In fact, even if they wanted to, they couldn't even try. That's who I've come for. There's a fascinating, one of the most fascinating things I think Jesus says in all of the Gospels and is on the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And you're kind of like, did he really mean that? And what's fascinating with Jesus saying that is that as you read through the rest of his public ministry, it's those people who seem most like they fit that description are always the ones that end up hating Jesus. And then the ones that seem that they could not be any further from that requirement are the ones that flock to Jesus and are welcomed and accepted by him. What are we going to do with that? What are we going to do when we realize that it's actually those kind of people that usually feel the most unwelcome in our midst? What are we going to do when we realize that we actually have history of actively and explicitly forbidding people from entering our midst? How many times did Jesus prove over and over and over again that he came for the rejects of the world? He meets the outcast leper. He doesn't just heal him, he touches him. He potentially scandalously initiates conversation and relationship with the promiscuous woman at the well. He lets the woman of the city bathe his feet with her tears. He dines and fellowships with greedy scoundrels like Levi and Zacchaeus. He changes the heart of the befuddled Pharisee Nicodemus. He calls Peter a rock when Peter never came anywhere close to being one. He calls the vile persecutor Saul from death to life on the road to Damascus. Now, if I were to write of all the other rejects that Jesus claimed for himself, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. I think Paul said it best in 1 Timothy 1. He said, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You are beginning to see, I think, why Luke records this here and now. Anything sound familiar here at the end of the story? Jesus claims to be God. They're filled with wrath, and they take him out onto a hill outside of the city to kill him. As Kenneth Bailey notes, the careful reader now has a notion of how it's all going to end. This Jesus, this Messiah, this Savior is going to be exactly as is prophesied in Isaiah 53. Where the prophet says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You read that and you go, why in the world would God send a savior like that? The prophet continues, Surely he has borne our griefs 
and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. A rejected Savior come to save rejects like us. So that not only does he welcome us into his family... But when he does, we are called children of the living God. That is a message worth hearing and sharing a million times over. That is a man worth loving and exalting with every ounce and breath that we have. And that is a mission for us to be about. Would that be true of us today, we pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this man that you gave to us and for us that we might be yours. Again, we would ask that we would see him, that we would hear him, and that we would know him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.